If it was a music thing, it would be a beat drop. <laughs> Blast and it didn't show up. <laughs> but they tell me it'll be here later this week. <laughs> That's a little early for us to get one, but hey, it comes when it comes. All right. I believe we were at the end of chapter 9. Is that correct, Andy? 938 around that area? I remember us touching that we were closing last week. This chair makes me feel like a kid again. <laughs> All righty. If everybody has marked 938, we'll start there. And hopefully we'll get into the bulk of chapter 10, skipping the first few verses. That's <laughs> fair. <laughs> and just jump into the blessing of the children. <laughs> All righty. So, it looks like Oh, yeah, we did kind of gloss over this. We'll just recap real quick. So at the end of chapter 9, around about verse 38, we have a thing coming out. We have a rival group who's teaching in the name of Jesus. But it's not only that they're teaching, but they're also being very effective. Because why? They're casting out demons in his name. But they're people who are not of the group that Jesus has been walking with. You know, these guys are basically identifying, these guys aren't with us. Should we go ahead and tell them to quit? It's almost like they were looking at Jesus like, they're still in our thunder, Lord. This is a rival group. We don't know them. They haven't been walking with us, you know. And it's kind of intriguing his response. You know, if it had been a person really caring about status and really caring about position, Jesus would be like, man, yeah, go get them. But what did he say? No, leave one off. Those who are not against us are for us. I, I do find that kind of intriguing at times. Uh, this was a this this particular pericope of scripture was a horrible for me growing up coming from the traditional conservative church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, being where I'm from, this never got preached on. <laughs> Because most people couldn't make heads or tails of it from what we normally had preached. They would leave this one alone and stick to our regular proof text. Because this one right here, it's kind of troublesome for your personal theology. It can be troublesome if your faith has been built around an exclusive theology. It's really troublesome if you're of the group that says, hold on, I'm the only one going to be saved because I'm here at this church. It's troublesome because you have a rival group. That's, I mean, there's no other way you can really explain what you're looking at there. These guys hadn't been walking with Jesus like Peter, John, and all of them have, and they're making note of that. That, hey, here are these people doing what we've been doing, but they're not of us. Because one thought would be, if they're not of us, there's no way they could be doing this. But Jesus says, no, if they're not against you, they're for you. You know, so what I do find interesting. Give me one second, y'all. I cannot see anybody. I'm going off of memory right now. <laughs> My glasses keep streaking on me. 
It's like having a dirty windshield. <laughs> That's a little bit. Oh, there you go. Oh, y'all look better than I thought you did. <laughs> there you are. Okay. So, as we read through here, and you come through 938. Um, what do y'all think about when we hit verse 42? Christ tells you those people are not, you know, they're not against us, they're for us. Uh, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. He talks about a person uh, who's chosen him, basically. It didn't, it transitions into a warning. I've never paid attention to this until I started really studying study this week. I usually kind of quick read over this section, but never read how it kind of flows. After he tells these people, don't mess with those guys, leave them alone, then there's a warning. It flows right into a warning where he says, but whoever causes one of these these little ones who believe in me to fall away. I used to always think that was talking about a child. Somebody told me that once, and I believed it. But when I went back here and I looked for myself, it transitioned from who he was talking about before. So it gives the implication that these people who were doing the casting out of demons and what, excuse me, and whatnot in Christ's name, but really haven't been around him, have faith in him. And the warning is anybody that causes their faith to stumble. What does it say? You better than if a large millstone will hunger on the back and run into the sea. That's kind of drastic. But anybody, was this a, do you think this was a warning to his people? Leave them alone. Don't go messing with them. Because if any of you go out here thinking you're doing something right by stopping them and cause their faith to falter, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and be cast into the sea. Wow. Jesus is not playing right here. He got serious real quick about protection of his quote unquote little ones for those who have faith in him that's really powerful and that shows his compassion his caring spirit and his protectiveness of those who believe in him in this moment that he's telling his people not only don't leave them alone if you so happen to forget what I'm telling you you create something or a situation that creates something that can cause them to stumble and lose faith in me You've got a problem. This text preaches all by itself. You know, as an adult, I've seen so many instances of where this is actually played out in front of me, where somebody in the church has created a situation for somebody who has faith, but not of our group, to lose faith because of their attitude, because of how they're walking because of their personal theologies or their personal understandings. We have to be careful with those personal things because sometimes because it's personal to you doesn't mean it expands over to somebody else's boundaries. Does that make sense? In other words, because you may think it's something right to do, that don't mean you ought to go out and try to exercise power over somebody. That's what I'm trying to say. Because these guys were wholeheartedly about to go stop these people. They didn't see the good that was going on. They saw competition. 
And too many times in church, we're competing for the wrong things. We're competing for clout. We're competing for status. All I'm trying to do is, if you want to compete with me and when in Jesus, outlove me. That's what we need to do. Outlove me. I encourage everybody in this room to do your best to outlove me. How do you do that? Love me better than I can love me. And I'm going to try my best to outlove you by loving you better than you can love you. If we put an effort like that towards one another and really compete in that aspect, the world could change. Because it starts about being thinking about other folks. And in this moment, I see Jesus thinking about other folks who are not particularly huddled around him right now, but he's trying to protect them. Because they got faith from him from a distance versus to the proximity of his people that are trying to stop them from what it seems here. Because they're not a part of the group. They don't know who they are. So that lets me know you're not mingling with the inner circles. You see what I'm talking about? So he's protecting the fringe of people who may not be right here in the room with us, but they're there and they hear and they heard and they're believing. He's protecting those groups. I do find that to be pretty powerful in this moment. But in the warning, <clears throat> excuse me, does anybody have a Bible that it omits verses 44, 46? Oh, chapter 9. You do? Y'all too? You do too? It's in the brackets. It's in the brackets. That's probably NASB or NRSB, right? All right. What you're seeing there is, in most older manuscripts, that's not in that particular place. Because those particular verses are identical to verse 48. But in the older manuscripts, it's, omit, it's not there. It's only in verse 48. So they believe there have been some type of redaction maybe there. So some of our more modern translations either bracket it or put it down at the bottom of your page in a footnote to let you know it's there. So I didn't want none of y'all of you having to read through this right now to think, oh my God, they changed the word of God. <laughs> they just, there's a way some, some translations will do that from time to time. You'll see things that you're usually commonly used to seeing and then all of a sudden you'll go 43, 45. <clears throat> Is it 48? What? So that's what it's doing right there. Because that, that, that passage, 44 and 46, are identical to 48. 44 and 46 aren't there in the oldest manuscripts we have in this text. So that's why you see that. But it's an interesting saying, okay? Because he goes on to keep this warning going. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than to have two hands and go to Gehenna, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter, enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna, or hell. And if your, eyes, if your eye causes you to uh, fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell or Gehenna. And here's that text that's missing in some of your scriptures, verse 48. Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Y'all would not understand. It, it kind of befuddled me for a while before I looked in commentaries, trying to understand what their worm meant. You know? And then I had to start thinking of the situation in this case, what we're trying to talk about, when we usually refer to Gehenna or hell, we're talking about an eternal punishment. So I'm assuming here I had to look at it. Now I have to think in terms of death. 
Because when I talk about throwing somebody into the ocean with millstone around their neck, so that's not a physical death. Now we got to talk about the spiritual aspects of how you died after you died and the, reper the repercussions here. So it starts talking about this, and I kept reading, so I finally had to go to my logos. I'm typing in, what does it mean by the worm? And I'm like, oh, it was talking about grubs, maybe a maggot. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imagery of it, death, continual death. You know, I don't know if anybody's ever seen a, a, a fly larva, a.k.a. a maggot or a grub. It's the, I don't know what it is about those things, but still, it's just the way they move and look. They make me sick when I see them. I mean, if I see a bad, I can't eat oatmeal for a while. I just can't do it because of how they look. It's just something about that. It just sends that feeling of itchiness all over my body. I don't like the heebie-jeebies. The heebie-jeebies, yes. And technical term. Yeah, the, the theological term, yeah. heebie-jeebies. Uh, but to see this in this imagery of having eternal worms like that, an eternal fight, that's torment. That's definitely torment uh, of all things. But one of the interesting renderings of what the word could mean was glow worm. And I was saying to myself, I bought my child one of them. Yeah. <laughs> glow worm, crimson glow worm. So it's definitely got something to do with the punishment. And that punishment would be continually going. Um, I mean, this is a bad situation. So for the people hearing this would have to understand that if they were to cause these people to stumble, this was a pretty harsh situation you put yourself in. Does that make sense? That warning was definitely meant to keep these people away from those folks and tell them to leave them alone. He wasn't playing right here at all. There was no joking, no beating around the bush. That original under, the hero would understand what he's trying to convey in this moment. Jesus is, is being very protective over those people. And I love that, because I love to see a Lord that can protect me like that. That even though I'm not closer, as close as everybody else is to you, you still protect me because I got faith in you. That's a wonderful thing right there, amen? All right. So, it goes on and finishes, it says, everyone will be salted, and my translation says salted with fire, or salted with salt. When I saw the fire thing, it kind of threw me off a little bit in this rendition I'm using. Uh, in the Christian Standard Bible, and I just sat there and I kind of pondered over it, and I it, it got the imagery of salting something. Like here we are in the winter months; soon we'll probably have ice, and some of us will be outside trying to sprinkle that salt out to try to melt the ice on our steps and whatnot. But after a while, you notice that salt is not good for anything. After a while, it loses its power. And in this situation here, it tells us that salt is good. But the salt loses its flavor. How can you season it? How can you resalt salt, basically? So have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So in other words, he's like, from what I'm hearing in this passage, it, it's here, is from what the Lord is trying to tell his people, is that we need every one of you to have its saltiness, its, its effective power. But you can't do it trying to devour one another. Is, is no way possible to do that. You know, think about it. When you have Christians gangbanging on each other, it doesn't look too good as a witness of Jesus, does it? It really doesn't. I used to have people who weren't believers 
the one question they used to ask me when I would talk to them and sit down and try to share Jesus with them is, why don't you agree with them people over there? They have that same Jesus or that people over there. Y'all all believe in the same Christ, but one of you believes that water has something to do, and one of you don't, but y'all can't get it together. And this is something they actually told me, this was about 10 or 12 years ago. He said he found it funny that Christians could get along. How he put it? He says, Christians are more aptly and readily to unite under a political candidate than they are under the one true Lord that you call their true Lord. And that slapped me in the face. I'm like, wow. You kind of pegged this on that. Some of us can't agree on Jesus as Lord, but we can agree on a certain person to run for mayor, governor, or whatever else quicker than we can coming together with Jesus. And that's kind of a, when he said that, that kind of changed my evangelistic thrust of how I would approach these situations and things. Because that let me know that our saltiness, our impact was waning because of certain things we started to do. So in life as Christians, it's not merely saying I'm a Christian, but it's the character of what you're acting, what you're living out and what you practice. Every day you live is a practice for what you're trying to be. And yeah, you're going to mess up some days, and some days you're not. You might even happen to cuss somebody out from yesterday, but today you're not going to try to do that. You know, it's a, it's a step each day of progressing in life. I think I grew up with the idea that being doctrinally right was more important than living the life. Living the life was not really emphasized as much as being doctrinally right. And once you were right, you could point out all the people who were wrong. Mm and just wonder why they lived such good lives and did so many good things. Uh, at least growing up, I, I felt that way. Uh, I totally understand. I grew up the same way. This, I'm not sure how much this is true, but it's helped me in my understanding about early Christians. So there were 3,000 added uh, to, to believers Yes, sir. And there was a lot less than that before, but by the time Constantine had uh, legitimized Christianity, there was like three million, yeah. three million, whatever it was. And that in the early days, people, whenever there would be a plague or something that was a threat, people would logically leave their own family members who became sick and run off to the woods so that they would not die and leave their own family to die alone. Wow. Christians not only would not do that, but they would take care of the people who had been deserted by their own families. Yeah. And they said that they believed that Jesus had died and been risen and they believed it. And so that was one of the reasons that they were able to, through grace, do what they did. I'm not sure how much of that is true, but I believe that. And that would seem to me to be a real difference in people that, you know, if you live on planet Earth, hey, if you die, you're not going to be rescued. You're just dead. Right. 
but they actually believed differently and acted as if they did by taking care of people that shouldn't mean anything to them. Right, and that's, a, that's actually a true statement. I've heard the same in my studies. Uh, that's where we get the word uh, hospitality. The word hospital came from what the Christians, what he just described as Christians doing, because they would do that. People would desert their family members. <coughs> Christians would go take care of those people and do the best they could. Hospitality goes into the word hospital and hospice. They would care for you even when you, they knew it was a bleak outcome. That's what Christians started doing. They saw the care they needed to do with other people, like he was talking about. That showed other folks a whole lot about who the Christ was in these folks. Because even in dire situations where they can even possibly get sick themselves, they didn't think about that. They went and took care of folks. You know? And in some cases it may even happen in, during the time of the plague, I'm not really sure, but a lot of Christians would forsake self to go help their fellow human, whether they agreed or not. Like, I think it was told to me when I was studying at Lipscomb that David Lipscomb himself in the early 1900s when they had an outbreak of was it cholera up in North Nashville? He went every day and would get nuns. Nuns. I didn't say sisters of the church. I said nuns. This Church of Christ minister would go get nuns, and they would go to North Nashville and minister to people. It actually got him sick, but he kept on helping these people because he realized they can't do for themselves. I need to do what I can to help. Even if it costs me my life, I willingly give it up for my brother or sister, or even a person who's not my brother or sister, I willingly lay it down to help the others, because that's what Christ did for me. That's a lot of faith, man. That's a lot of faith. That takes a lot of Christian maturity. Um, you know, I'm trying to get there. I, I can't say that I'm there yet. I'm working that way. But that says a lot for who people are able to get there. And, and because you're not there, y'all, please don't. Sometimes we hear things like that I just said and think, oh, just the words. No, don't think that way. You're just not there yet. You're on a journey. You're on a journey. We're all growing. You just haven't got to where you need to be just yet. Be patient. God will work it out in due time, and you won't even realize when you step into it until you step into it. Because that's how he works sometimes. Sometimes we think it's going to be a plan that we see it. No, sometimes with the Lord, when it comes time to act, you just walk right into the role. And you fit the way he needs you to fit to work it out. And you're like, how did I get here? It had to be God. But you'll be able to function. So don't don't down yourself or anything like that. Understand, in due time, he'll get you where you need to be. Okay. Let's go to the first part of chapter 10. I'm, before we leave this section, oh, yes, somebody, somebody would help me to understand. Because I... Maybe they're the metaphors, I don't know. But what I'm seeing in this passage, the first, uh, if, you, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, thrown into the sea. Sea is salt water. Come down to verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. Then the next three things, your hand, your foot, your eye, you're going to be thrown into the Hell, which is where the fire is not quenched. But in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. The whole, the sea and the salt, I mean, it's, you don't want to be in the sea, because that's where the salt is, but yet 
salt is good. And you don't want to be thrown into the fire because that's, you know, the fire's not going to be quenched. But for Thursday night, everyone is going to be salted with fire. I mean, the whole salt is good with salt in the sea, and you don't want to be thrown in the sea. All of those you things see, are getting all mixed up in my you head. Death, <laughs> you see the death metaphors in there. Because yeah. water to most people back then was dangerous and dark. Because they knew if people went into water, they usually didn't come out in a lot of cases. So water can be symbolic of death as well as fire. As baptism. As yes, water, yes. Sea, though, um, called Galilee a sea, and mm -hmm. it's water. So they sometimes look at any large body of water. And they, if it was bigger than what you, if you couldn't see across it, it was a sea in most cases because it's a pretty big lake. Uh, in certain areas, you can't look across. But, uh, but just that like, metaphor you're showing there with the sea salt the, water, the salt, uh, yeah, I see what you're It's like it's good and it's bad. Yeah. And the fire is, fire is bad. It's fire, it's and it's says, unquenchable. We're all going to be salted with fire? I don't even know what that means. That one salted with fire. all those words are just oh, the salted head. with fire pieces. I wrestle with a lot, and I still don't understand what it means. Actually, to be honest uh, I with think you, that's a one of those weird translations we go into English. Okay. Yeah, the word there is probably more preserved mm -hmm. because you, you, you think about or purified. Yeah, I can see if that. You, if you think about what he's talking about, is that yeah, when you go through this, you're going to be purified. It was a very common. Saying in those days, purified with fire. Really. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It just makes my mind kind of because that the things that bring death are also you have to go through to get to get to life. Right. The preserve the fire purifies you, and salt is what you know. You salt your meat to keep it exactly. You know, all of it, just, oh. Isn't there a process of uh, using heat and fire to uh, separate gold? And some yeah. metals. The more you go through it, the more pure it gets. Exactly. All of that stuff is just. So and then the message, you know, it's not a, it's not a translation, right? It's a paraphrase. So it's Eugene Peterson's commentary on it. He, he says, in the message, he says, everyone's going through a refining fire sooner or later, but you will be well preserved, protected from the eternal flames. Be per preservatives yourselves. Preserve the peace. So it's very much commentary, you know, not a very much a paraphrase, uh, but it's helpful. He says, everyone's going through a refining fire sooner or later, but you'll be well-preserved, protected from eternal flames. Be preservatives yourself. Preserve the peace. So kind of what, in line with Jeff's saying, preserving, and, yeah, it, it doesn't, I think the translation is tough for us to English. It doesn't, it is confusing. Very, I mean, I don't fully understand that. Because when I think of salt, I think of curing, like curing meat to keep pres preserve it. Because uh, one of my favorite things around Christmas and Thanksgiving is country ham. Mm -hmm. But everybody knows if you got to soak that bad boy to get that cure off of it. Because you do that, you're going to the you eat that the way it comes in, you're going to the hospital. Because your blood pressure is going straight through the roof. But that cure keeps the flavor in it, though. The best, I, I mean, I don't know about anybody else in here if you eat ham or don't. But my favorite type of country ham was a Bingham ham out of Cornersville, Tennessee. Down here by Pulaski, where I'm from, we always have to go find a Bingham ham because they do it. They, their process for me is better than Clifty Farm. You know, I don't like Clifty Farm ham because they just don't taste right. 
I don't know how what they did. I mean, maybe they rubbed the salt on a different direction. I don't know. <laughs> but it's just the way the preservative is, and it's a pure taste to me. Yes, ma'am. I don't know if this is too fresh an example, uh -oh. or if this is the a good example. Blake Farmer's mother was wonderful. She was wonderful her whole life. She had a wonderful, three wonderful children. Blake's example. But at a young age, developed ALS. Mm. And by 69, was dead. Mm. During that time, she still was as she was being tested by fire, essentially, she was showing even more so the kind of person that she was. And on her program, the back page, she wrote her story, knowing she was dying in a few days. She wrote it using her eyes with some technology that let her write on her computer. Her eyes did it because her hands she could not use. Oh wow. And so it, it's as though this person who was beautiful to begin with but who underwent this awful thing that she did not anticipate came out even more beautiful, more pure, more uh, something that would draw you to her. You just want to be like that. You wish you had known her. Uh, you want to hear more stories about her. That, that kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, I think we felt that way when uh, the doctor, Dr. Brantley, went in and got uh, Ebola. Ebola. Mm -hmm. That we wanted to know more about him, and he became nationally known. He was on the cover of Time, right? Because he here was a man who could have just said, "I'm going home." He did not, and uh, worked, and now is going back. Um, that attracts that attracts people. That yeah. kind when when the pure person comes out. We are drawn to that person. Uh, you know, I'm drawn to the Bennies because I know what they go through to live, to go where they go, right. to do what they do. I'm drawn to the Shermans because they, they've been through terrible things like, you know, Steve got shot, daughter got kidnapped. You know, they've just had, you did not know that? No. Kidnapped in Guatemala, and the whole world heard about that because of the internet. Everybody knew that little girl was somewhere in Guatemala. And uh, you, to go through all that, and then you come out even more beautiful. Uh, I don't know if that's what he's talking about or not, but that's what I think of. I can see how it could fit. I can see the fitness of that. Uh, I mean, that, 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 that faith in the midst of that that gives that savor to what they're doing is powerful. I mean, one of my mentors, the late Dr. Peggy Way, when I met that lady, it was a gravitational pull to what she exhibited, her knowledge, her wisdom, her caring that she had towards other people. 
uh, all those things right there. I said, whatever it is she knows, I'll need to get it. You know, and during the time of my doctoral studies, we came very close. And this lady was about 70-some-odd years old in a wheelchair, had polio, and had been a scholar and a preacher of her uh, faith all her life. Her and she started out this journey with her husband. And I was like, so when did you catch polio? She said, I've always had it. I said, dude, what? And this was a woman who had like four master's degrees, uh, PhD, <laughs> something else, and worked in churches, worked in different universities, and here she is having to wheel around in the wheelchair the whole time. And you had this powerhouse of a lady, you know, that can walk in, well, roll into a room, and with mirrors, quiet voice, silence the crowd. <laughs> and when I seen that, I'm like, I gotta learn what she's learning and where she's come from, what's going on. You know, I wanted to understand what she saw in Jesus that gave her the strength. You know, and I was blessed to, to work with her for four years until like a, literally a month before defense when we came to our long journey, getting me to where I need to be, she passed away untimely from uh, cancer. But yeah, I understand, this is, that, that's exactly it, I think. That salt draws people in. But we re we resist. We don't want that. It's scary. I want, I want doctors and everybody to keep any of that from happening to me. But it's scary though, <laughs> because think about this. I don't know what will come out. That too, and you can't control the flow. When God has people coming at you and to you to witness Him in you, you cannot control what He brings to you when he brings it to you, and how he brings it to you. I've had to learn that in my life. You know, I've always been that person. People say, oh, you're a leader. That's cool. That's fine. I I'm cool with that. But there are sometimes I just want to sit in the shadows and be left alone. But every time I try that in my life, God has a way of pulling me out of the shadows and says, no, son, I didn't make you for this. You can't hide. I need you over here. My people need you out here. So he's has a way of always pulling me out and putting me where he wants me. And I had to get used to that, you know, into that moment. Even like it was a 2007, Good Friday, 2007. It was April the 6th, I believe it was. I was supposed to be at home sleeping on my couch. Instead, I picked up an extra shift. Went to work, worked a whole shift. Worked on homework at work. You know, it was, it was a holiday. Nobody was really there in the building. I worked in the state building doing security. I get off and get in my car and I go home. As I'm getting home, I see a pillow with smoke in the distance. And I'm like, oh, wow, another fire. And I keep driving. Closer I get home, the bigger that pillar of smoke gets. The next thing you know, I realize, hold on. I can't get to my house because all the roads are blocked. So I start trying to maneuver my way to get to my apartment before I realize it. I said, man, this is really close to where I live. So I called my cousin, and I said, hey, man, I need you to turn on the news and see if there's anything about this. I said, I'm stuck over here on this road, and I can't get home. I'm trying to make it to the apartment. I had to work today. And he cuts on News Channel 5, because I seen the helicopter flying above. And I said, hey, check this out. The helicopter's there. Tell me what you can see. And he's on the phone. We're talking. All of a sudden, he gets really quiet. And I'm like, what's the matter, man? He says, Angus, I think you just lost your home. He said, I can see an apartment complex on fire and it looks just like yours. I said, you're lying, quit playing with me. He said, I wish I was. So by this time, I get to a place where I can actually park and walk over. 
and I get to the area, and as I'm walking up the hill to go to my apartment, my next door neighbor, literally who lived right in front of me, is walking down with soot on, looks at me and says, it's all gone. Everything is gone. And I looked at him and said, what happened? He said, that fire burned up everything we've got. So I just continued on up the hill, and I walked straight over to the management office, and I walk into the manager's office, and she is bawling, she is crying hard. And I walk in, and I've seen everybody, all my neighbors are still out there, nobody, I didn't see anybody missing. And I walk in, and I looked at her, and said, are you all right? And she's like, no, it's awful, it's this. I'm like, did we lose anybody? She's like, no, we got the kids out. What the, here's the thing. In the midst of fighting the fire, I knew one of the captains who actually came to respond to it. He worked for me at Upper Mills because I was the captain of security. And he said they could have put that fire out. But in the midst of fighting the fire, they looked up as he was climbing up the ladder to go up to the roof. He looked forward, and when he looked forward, there was kids in a window staring back out at him. And they said, uh-oh, stop everything. We got kids and people in this building. Forget the fire, get the people out. So they had a choice to make. Do we sacrifice people to save the structure or do we sacrifice the structure to save the people? And they sacrificed the structure, which I was wholeheartedly with. Because I thought about a lot of things that day. I wasn't supposed to be at work, and I went. If I hadn't been at work, I would have been trapped in my apartment when it was burning. Because I'm a sound sleeper when I go to sleep. So nine times out of ten, there would have been a fire at my front door and there was no back door. And God moved me that day. You know, he moved my other neighbors. And I, like I told the manager of the apartment, you know, that day I walked in that room. Y'all don't understand. Some people say I was in shock. Some people say, I don't know what I was in, but all I know is I wasn't worried. I didn't have a care. Even though the only thing in this world I owned was the drawers I had on, the boots I had on my feet. That was it. And I walked to that office and looked at that lady and said, I don't know if you're religious or not, but can I please pray for you in this moment? I said, because you got a lot on you. And it's trying to overwhelm you. But I'm here to tell you, we're okay. And that's when we start praying. And then I went out of that office, back into that parking lot, and did the same thing with all my neighbors. And try to encourage them. I said, we're going to be all right. Okay? We didn't lose anybody. We lost two pets, unfortunately. A cat and a little puppy. They, somebody they didn't get them out in time. But other than that, we did not lose a soul, a body, a human. And that day, I, just, I mean, I should have been distraught. I mean, because literally everything I had worked for, everything I had, was gone. You know? But when I started that day out, y'all, I was a negative $175 in the bank. When I ended that day, I had over $4,000 in the bank. I didn't know how everything was going to happen. Everything was just like it messed up. But then when God showed up, I didn't know what he wanted me to do. I didn't ask any questions. As I walked up that hill, I said, God, you're funny because I don't know what's going on right now, but I trust you. And I walked into everything that was going on, and I just started doing what came natural. And people looked at me like I was crazy and said, are you in shock? No, not really. I'm just doing what I know to be natural. And that's what I did in that moment. And a lot of people started, you know, we had to go, we got marshaled over to a, tr a church. And 
I was preaching in Winchester, Tennessee at the time where I ministered for 14 years. And I was sitting there talking to those. We marshaled uh, everybody to a Nazarene church, and the pastor came in, and he looks at me, says, sir, are you all right? I said, yeah, I just need some water. I'm thirsty. I've been doing a lot of talking. And he looks at me, and he says, so what do you do? I said, well, I'm actually a minister like you. And he says, oh, for real? I said, yeah. I said, unfortunately, though, I lost all my Bibles in this fire. So I don't know how I'm going to preach God's word. Right now, my memory is not that good. And he runs back to his office and comes back out and he hands me a Bible and says, here, here's another, here's to a new start. So God has a way of doing things when, you know, it all happens. You know, I didn't know what I was going to wear to church that Sunday. But by the time Sunday came around, I had clothes. You know, I had towels. I had things that I needed, I had. So sometimes we're finding by fire some of the greatest stuff that can happen. It's not comfortable. I don't want anybody to think that that mess hurt, y'all. You know, all that right there culminated after uh, this happened in Good Friday. What happened four months before that was I was hit by a drunk driver and broke my hand in a car wreck in the middle of finals. Okay? What happens after the fire was I went through another fire at school because I was making full-time graduate hours plus summer school. Couldn't finish the classes because all my classwork burned up. So I'm having to recreate everything that I already did just to get to turn in yet. And take these other, so I took the equivalent of five graduate courses, master MDF courses at Lipscomb in a summer. That was hard. <laughs> and to this day, I can't tell you how I made it except to say God was in the middle of all that. But it was something that refined me and changed my perspective in ministry and life and everything. And it was rough. Because <laughs> in those fiery moments where you're salted like that, the goldenness that God is going to bring out you bubbles to the surface. And he's able to scrape that off and put you back together again. That's what he does. You know, and I didn't mean to take that long on this, but y'all say me from having to talk about this divorce test. I'm going to get back to the answer. <laughs> I guess next week I'll just call. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about <laughs> whatever he's saying? It's always fun. Oh, um, yeah, I got ready for that, though. I wanted to talk about Hilly Ellen Shemai, <laughs> those guys, and everything, how they help. But this was a really good uh, discussion, right? I enjoyed this, y'all. Because those fires we go through in life, you but know. We don't want them. We don't want Instead them. Instead of embracing them, we don't want them. It's hard to embrace, it hurts. That pain hurts. Like, there's been several times in my life we had a, uh, in my life I had fire like that. You know, I've lost everything, literally. And each time that I've lost it all, I had to understand, well, come to realization in retrospect, that was God moving me to the next level. So nowadays in my life, I don't have a problem losing stuff because I know it can happen real quick. (coughs) And you can ask my wife, I like collecting things. So when the first fire hit, it took a lot of valuable collectibles away from me. I didn't need them, I guess, so they're gone. The only thing I really miss are the pictures of my great-grandparents that I lost. (laughs) I got some of those back, not all of them. But sometimes in life, God has a way of moving things out of your way to allow you to become who he wants you to be. Because inadvertently, as life moves on, we pick up things, and those things become a status and a symbol. And sometimes those things also become a stumbling block in our lives. So he's able to move it by refining you to become a better version of you. And yes, it hurts. 
And sometimes, she says, sometimes we do not embrace it. Sometimes we do, but it, it hurt to go through those times. But remember what the Lord said, you will suffer for my name's sake. And I believe that's a piece of it. Thank y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.